Oh, Father, we, as we prepare our hearts to come to your word, we ask, oh Lord, that you would feed us. We ask that you would nourish us. We ask that uh, even through the, the fallible voice of, of myself, of, of the preacher here, that the voice of Christ would be heard, that the good shepherd would be speaking to us, nourishing us with your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it, would, uh, that it would change us, that it would transform us, that it would conform us to the likeness of Christ. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would, uh, that the Spirit would enlighten the text, illuminate the text, that we may understand, and that he may give us the desire, the motivation, to apply it to our lives, to not be only hearers, but to also be doers of your word, in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives and in order that our lives would be lived in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have given us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be concluding part of our series uh, in the Sermon on the Mount today. Of course, the Beatitudes are just the beginning portion of the text, uh, the first 10 verses or so, uh, nine verses or so. Uh, But the last Beatitude is actually three verses, verses 10 to 12. So those are the verses that we're going to be covering today. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 12 as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount and as we conclude our series on the Beatitudes. Uh, This final Beatitude, I think you'll see, is one that is completely appropriate to be the last one. And it's something that I think should be seen in every Christian's life and yet in our culture, we're we very comfortable. And so perhaps we don't experience it to the same degree that the people in China or North Korea or the Middle East might experience it. And of course, the topic I'm, pre, uh, I'm talking about there is uh, persecution. Uh, persecution is something that should be seen in, in every Christian's life. There's a phenomenon that's, that's known uh, that the countless Christians have experienced throughout church history, uh, and it involves feeling a sense of kind of hopelessness, almost being on the verge of despair, but it also uh, usually involves feeling vastly, vastly outnumbered uh, and or alone. Uh, if you've ever felt like that because of your faith, uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, countless Christians throughout the ages have experienced this phenomenon. It's the phenomenon that is commonly referred to as spiritual depression. Spiritual depression. It's something that even uh, the great preacher of the 19th century, the prince of preachers as they call him, Charles Spurgeon, was known for having suffered. Uh, Spurgeon was a pastor in a time that is remembered as uh, the great downgrade controversy the great downgrade controversy. To summarize what that was, uh, I'd say that it was simply a time of great and widespread falling away from the faith in the church. A a time of great apostasy. And it really wasn't all that different from what we see as you look across the landscape of evangelical America today. Uh, But Spurgeon took a very strong stand against the Baptist Union in London, citing at least four major issues uh, with the churches throughout London and beyond. Those four issues were, number one, the denial of, uh, the, denial of the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, of course, this came from uh, a lot of the German academia, uh, which was where you get the higher textual criticism and the idea that, uh, that the Bible's just full of errors. Uh, Spurgeon disagreed, so he took issue with the denial of the infallibility of Scripture. Number two, he took issue with the denial of the necessity uh, and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. Number three, he took issue with the denial of the existence and the eternality of hell. 
And number four, he took issue with the affirmation of universalism. Universalism being the idea that God saves everyone regardless. But despite being an incredibly, incredibly influential pastor in his time, Spurgeon was, was actually greatly outnumbered in taking issue with all these issues. Uh, his critics outnumbered him and outnumbered those who sided with him exponentially. And the result was that this contributed greatly to the depression that Spurgeon already struggled with as a pastor as a result of a major fire uh, that took place uh, in, early in his career in his church. In fact, there were times when Spurgeon was so severely depressed that he would just spend the day in bed. And in those times, his wife, Susie, would uh, print all eight of the Beatitudes out on a large sheet of paper and would tack that sheet of paper to the ceiling over Charles Spurgeon's bed, her hope being that he would find comfort, especially in the eighth and final Beatitude, which is the longest of the Beatitudes, the Beatitude that we cover today. Uh, and it covers three verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, which say this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This final beatitude did indeed give Spurgeon some relief, a deep sense of, of comfort and encouragement, because it reminded him in his own words that, quote, the hatred of man does not deprive the saint of the love of God, even revilers contribute to his blessedness, end quote. And that is actually a perfect summary of exactly what this beatitude uh, reminds us of, it's a perfect summary of, of the, the point of this beatitude. The hatred of man does not deprive the, the saint of the love of God. Even revilers contribute to his blessedness. This is the only beatitude that Jesus really uh, elaborated on, at least on, on the spot. Perhaps because it is the beatitude uh, that we would be most likely to question or to scrutinize. After all, who could possibly think that being persecuted would in any way, shape, or form be a good thing? It sounds absolutely ridiculous on the surface. Who could possibly convince themselves that being persecuted even unto death, can be a blessing. I mean, it seems absurd to the natural mind that the Christian should rejoice when he is reviled, should rejoice when he is insulted, when he is slandered, when evil things are spoken about him or against him. It seems ridiculous that he should rejoice when he's being hunted down and maybe even physically harmed, maybe even killed because of his faith in Jesus. The natural mind looks at something like that and says, no, when you're persecuted, run. That's what you're supposed to do. Run for the hills. Or, or when you're persecuted, you should fight back. Or when you're persecuted, you should be angry. You should, you should feel afraid. But to rejoice when you're being persecuted when you're being reviled. I mean, it, it might sound like paradoxical nonsense, but Jesus elaborated on this beatitude in a way that he doesn't with the other beatitudes to show that there's a reason for this. There's a reason that we should rejoice when we're persecuted. Now, there are a few things that we should be mindful of, a few things that we should be reminded of as we begin this eighth uh, and final beatitude. Uh, the first thing that we should remember is that the beatitudes are essentially a list of what you might call family values, right? These are, these are family values for anyone who is in God's family, adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, into his family as a son or daughter. The Beatitudes are deeply, deeply instructive. They are not aimed at anyone else. These are only aimed at Christians. These are only things that Christians are able to do. And again, these are 
family values. And if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for your salvation, forsaking your your own so-called righteousness and your own efforts to earn salvation, then the Beatitudes should be something of a picture of your life. All the qualities and all the rewards and sometimes all of the consequences outlined in the Beatitudes should be evident to some degree, in every Christian's life. And if they are, then so are the rewards that are connected to each of them, respectively. But it's interesting to note that this reward, in this case, uh, for being persecuted, uh, and yes, there is actually a reward for it, is actually identical to the, to the reward that was given in the first beatitude. If you have your Bibles open, look back at verse 3. Uh, the first beatitude, back in verse 3, says this. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is again. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the reward for the first one. That's the reward for the last one. And there's a very good reason that the reward for the first beatitude is identical to the reward of the last. It shows us that the Christian journey is all about being a citizen of a different kingdom. You start the journey as a citizen of this kingdom and you end the journey as a citizen of this kingdom. This world is not your home. And praise the Lord for that because this world is just dominated by the effects of sin. Your life as a citizen of this spiritual kingdom, on the other hand, should not be dominated by the effects of sin. Of course, that isn't to say that you aren't going to have sin or that you won't sin. Of course you will. Uh, You do it every day. Uh, And John, the apostle, says of the person who denies that he has sinned, that that person is deceiving himself and the truth is not in him. So yes, you will sin. Yes, you have sin. But sin will not dominate you. It will not dictate every single thing that you do in life, which is what it does, as, like as a master does for a slave or a servant, uh, which we read about in Romans chapter 6. Sin will not dominate you. It's not your master. It used to be your master. It was your master. But guess what? That was the old man. That was the old You, the you that you were born with, the nature that you were born with. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in Him alone for uh, for your salvation, you are a new creation. You are a new person if you have put saving faith in Jesus Christ. And while you will still sin, here's the key. While you will still sin, you will struggle with it. You will fight it. You will do everything that you can to maim it and to kill it. You will desire in its place. You used to desire sin, but now in its place you will desire righteousness. In areas where you once wanted to fight and to kill the idea of righteousness. But you will, if you are in Christ, you will desire righteousness. That word desire is important because... That's the key to everything. That's, that's, that's what the heart says. The heart is the center of our actions and our desires. And yet we recognize that there is this struggle with the flesh. So if, if it were just, you know, you will be righteous, you will, you will obey the law perfectly, every single one of us would have to despair because we don't. We don't even come close but we will desire to. We will desire righteousness. That's a quality that distinguishes the true citizen of kingdom, uh, the true citizen of the kingdom of heaven from false professors. Uh, now, that's something that we need to be mindful of. That there, that there needs to be a desire there. Not that you'll practice righteousness perfectly. You won't, but you will desire to. You'll desire to be freed not only from the penalty of sin, but you will desire to be freed from the power of sin as well. And make no mistake about it, this is something that we need to be really clear about. If you want to be freed from the penalty of sin, but you have no desire to be freed from the power of sin, the reality is you have been freed from neither. You have been freed from neither. And again, this is something that only describes the Christian. The Christian 
desires not only to be free from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin and from the presence of sin. Your unbelieving friends, however, your, your unbelieving family members, co-workers and neighbors, they don't desire righteousness. To desire righteousness, I mean, think about it. Would desiring righteousness be a good thing? Absolutely. Desiring righteousness, of course it would be a good thing. And yet the Scriptures are clear that apart from God's grace, Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 12, there is none who does good. There is not even one. So that desire, if you desire righteousness, that is affirmation of your citizenship as uh, in, in God's kingdom because that desire is good. And there's nothing good within us by nature. So if there's something good in us, like a desire to be righteous, where must it have come from? It must have come from outside of us. It must have come from God. That's something that a Christian feels. But again, your unbelieving friends, family members, and neighbors don't have that desire. They desire the same thing that, that you desired before God's grace worked in you to change you. They desire to be freed not from the power and the presence of sin. They desire to be freed from the power and presence of righteousness. And what do you suppose that means? It means that if you are acting righteously, they will be repulsed by it. It means that the Christian will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The second thing to note about this beatitude is the position of this beatitude. Not only is it the final beatitude, but look what it is positioned directly after. Uh, the seventh beatitude, surprise, which said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, do you think there might just be some type of correlation or connection between being a peacemaker and being persecuted? There absolutely is. Because the peacemaker reflects God's character even in the presence of those who you might refer to as children of the devil. And even when the children of the devil become hostile toward the peacemaker, the Christian desires and works toward peace, not only between himself and uh, the hostile child of the devil, but also peace between this child of the devil and God. The hatred of man does not deprive the saint of the love of God. Even revilers contribute to his blessedness. And when children of the devil revile and slander and insult you and persecute children of God, their hatred may be multiplied when they see that their animosity uh, toward Christians only serves as a blessing to that Christian. But that is the effect that it should have if we're being persecuted for the sake of of righteousness and it should serve when we're persecuted it should serve to uplift us to relieve us from a sense of distress when our fellow man stands against us strong stands strongly uh, and with many others uh, against us when we're outnumbered when we're feeling alone because we desire righteousness and all of them don't this beatitude gives us reason to find comfort and beyond that, to rejoice. The third observation to make here is that there's actually a parallel between verses 10 and 11. And when there's a parallel like this, it's an indication that they essentially mean uh, at least roughly the same thing. One is just maybe stated differently, uh, maybe more clearly than the other. Maybe, more, uh, maybe one is more symbolic and the other one is more literal. But in this case, the parallel is between for the sake of righteousness in verse 10 and the clause because of me in verse 11. Now, if you like to highlight in your Bible, if you like to write things and circle things in your Bible, you might want to circle or, or underline both of those clauses because the indication is that being persecuted for the sake of righteousness and being persecuted because of Jesus are essentially the same thing. Now, we need to make sure that we understand what the Lord means when He speaks of being persecuted for the sake of righteousness or persecuted for His sake because we all recognize that there is 
all kinds of persecution in the world. There's a lot of persecution in the world, and I think that this verse has sometimes been twisted, sometimes been uh, applied in ways that it shouldn't be to, to say that this verse means something that it doesn't. Uh, for one thing, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness isn't the same thing as political persecution. Uh, we, we see that there is much political persecution in the world today. There's even much political persecution in our own country today. Uh, and there's a history of it being that way. There's a history of political persecution in the United States. Uh, maybe you've heard of McCarthyism. Uh, if you took high school uh, American history, there was a thing called McCarthyism, which was really an effort headed up by former U.S. Senator uh, Joe McCarthy to cleanse our political system of any and every hint of communism. And so if you were a communist, uh, you faced political persecution in our country. Now hold on, before you say hallelujah, uh, before you say amen, let me remind you that Christianity is not about flushing out communism. In fact, that has nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the same point in his commentary on this beatitude. He writes that, quote, As Christians, we are to be concerned for the souls of communists and their salvation in exactly the same way that we are concerned about other people. End quote. That is to say that we are not to be less concerned for the salvation of uh, right-wing conservatives than we are for the salvation of uh, left-wing progressive radicals. We need to be concerned about them both. Lloyd-Jones continues writing that, quote, If once we give them the impression that Christianity is just anti-communism, we are ourselves shutting and barring the doors and almost preventing them from listening to our gospel message of salvation. End quote. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. There, there are scores of soul, souls that need to be saved on both the far left and the far right. The gospel shows no partiality to one side or the other. So being persecuted for the sake of righteousness is not the same as facing political persecution. Let's be sure to make that distinction. Uh, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness is also not the same as facing consequences for speaking foolishly or uh, speaking in a manner that is unwise or unloving. Uh, yes, we are to speak the truth. We, we should be a people who are all about the truth, and yet we are specifically instructed to speak the truth in love. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul argues that if he's the most gifted uh, Christian speaker in the world, but doesn't have love, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I was really tempted to just illustrate this for you guys up here, uh, but I'll let you use your imaginations. Just imagine if I were speaking to you while uh, I'm up here also banging on the cymbals at the same time. Uh, you might realize that the cymbals would be so loud that they would just drown out my voice entirely so that it wouldn't matter one iota if I was up here talking about the gospel or if I was up here talking about how much I dislike Swiss cheese, you wouldn't know because you wouldn't be able to hear. You wouldn't hear what I have to say. And that's a picture of the person who speaks the truth, but speaks the truth without love. Instead of speaking the truth, you may as well just try to describe the ideal size of a peanut, in your opinion. Because either way, nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to listen to what you have to say. And so to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness doesn't mean uh, that you uh, are being persecuted because you spoke unkindly or without love. Uh, to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness, righteousness should also not be confused uh, with uh, speaking the truth even with love in an unwise or uncivil manner. Not only are we to speak the truth in love, but we are also instructed specifically again by Jesus to be wise as serpents and yet gentle as doves. Wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Uh, I saw the perfect illustration of someone who you might have said was, was persecuted for evangelizing in a way that I would say was less than 
wise or maybe less than respectful this past week. Now, I enjoy watching videos of street evangelists because they give me all kinds of ideas for, for outreach and evangelism and starting up conversations with people that, that lead to the gospel. But one of the guys that I watch on YouTube, is he's generally pretty good. Uh, his doctrine seems very sound, I would say, and he seems to truly desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. Well, this past week, he posted a video of himself uh, walking through a grocery store, getting in people's faces and asking, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And it was very clear in the video that he was making a lot of these customers feel very uncomfortable. Several of them asked him to just leave them alone. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I know that sharing the gospel with an unbeliever uh, has a way of making them feel uncomfortable in a way that we just can't avoid. It, it just does. It's a stumbling block. We get that. Uh, that much can't be avoided. But eventually, the store manager comes up to him and tells him, you know, you're, you're going to have to leave. You're upsetting uh, a lot of our customers, to which the evangelist responded, well, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Which I, I love, I love that response. And, and while I do love that response, and while I do love this guy's heart to reach the lost and his faithfulness, uh, the fact is that if the store manager is not a Christian, let's just assume that he's not, what kind of a witness is it for a Christian to be do, uh, doing something that causes him to lose customers and thus lose money. And thus maybe, maybe even put his job on the line if his boss over him uh, gets a call and says, hey, you know, I, I hear that all these people were upset and you didn't do anything about it, you're fired. What kind of a witness is that? See, this isn't a case... Uh, as, as much as we would like to call this persecution, it's not a case of somebody being persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of Christ. This is a case of someone who has a good heart, a good motive. He's desiring to do a good thing, but he has an unwise game plan. The fact is that this young man uh, you know, would have been kicked out of the store for going around and trying to convince customers to all vote for uh, a certain uh, political figure just as quickly, perhaps. And so the, the offense, therefore, wasn't the gospel. The offense was the circumstances and the way that the gospel was being presented. Think about it this way. Let's say that I, I've got a good desire to share the gospel, and that is a good desire, by the way. And let's say I've, I've got this desire to share the gospel at a fast food restaurant in the drive-thru. And so I go through the drive-thru, and I start speaking to this employee who's just there to get payment for my food. But I go through the whole process, right? I want to be thorough. I go through the whole process of holding up the law of God and showing a person that they stand guilty before God. A person needs to feel guilty before God, before the, the balm and the, 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 the ointment of the gospel can be applied. So let's say that I, you know, I, I want to hold up the law and walk the person all the way through it. I want to make sure that I thoroughly explain how God provided the perfect righteousness that he requires in Christ alone. But as I do, as I'm talking to this employee, uh, the cars behind me are really starting to pile up so that it's evident to the guy who's now 15 cars behind me that I'm just sitting there having a conversation with the employee, preventing the employee from doing their job and thus costing the restaurant both time and money and preventing the other customers from getting their food and getting on with their day. Day. Now, the guy in the 15th car back doesn't know that I'm sharing the gospel. As far as he knows, I'm up there trying to explain to the employee that they can save 15% or more by switching to a new auto insurance policy, you know. And so if he gets out of his car and starts yelling at me to move on and get out of the way, I might feel persecuted. Uh, and in fact, if he's mad enough, maybe I, I will be, but it isn't persecution for the sake of righteousness. That would be persecution for the sake of being unwise, uh, of, of being foolishly inconsiderate. Now contrast that with another uh, video of an evangelist whom I love to watch. Uh, that's Ray Comfort. 
uh, Ray Comfort, if you've ever watched his videos, they're, they're all pretty much the same. He, uh, he approaches people in public spaces and, and asks them if they'd be willing to take just a few minutes to have an interview with him for his YouTube channel. And once they agree, uh, he begins talking to them and eventually works his way to the gospel. Uh, he's always clear. He's always gracious. He always speaks the truth in love. In fact, it's common for him to tell the person that he's interviewing, I love you. Uh, I don't want to see you end up in hell one day. But the other day, he posted a video in which the young man that he was interviewing uh, just kind of up and walked away mid-interview. And as he did, uh, a bystander or one of his friends, I was unclear as to which it was, uh, this guy was probably 20 or 25 years old. He turns to Ray Comfort, who I believe is 71 or 72 years old now, and, and he flexes his arms and he says to Ray Comfort, that's a great way to get punched. What is? What's a great way to get punched? Sharing the gospel? Speaking the truth in love, Ray had been neither untruthful nor ungracious nor inconsiderate. He, he was speaking the truth in love. In fact, as usual, I don't think he could have been more considerate of this young man that he was interviewing, but it evoked a hostile response from this other young man simply because the gospel is offensive to the darkened mind of the unregenerate man. Ray Comfort's response, by the way, I loved it. It was wonderfully gracious. He says, he says to this guy, what makes you want to punch me? Please come back here and let's talk and work this out together. That's what it looks like to be a peacemaker. That's what it looks like to follow Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, there's a major, major difference between making people angry for sharing the gospel in a manner that is inconsiderate or foolish and there being consequences for that and being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those aren't the same thing. It's possible to be motivated by love for your lost friends or family members or neighbors, but to also bring unnecessary consequences, unneeded suffering perhaps, upon ourselves. And when we do, we can't say uh, that that's persecution for the sake of righteousness. Not if it's something other than the gospel itself that people are taking offense at. The fact of the matter is that this is a principle that is clearly taught throughout the Bible, by the way, that the righteous are persecuted by the unrighteous. Uh, we see it in the way that uh, the first exchange, the first human interaction after the Garden of Eden, we see it in the way that Cain persecuted his brother Abel. Uh, Cain took issue with the fact that Abel found favor with God. Uh, we, we see that Joseph was persecuted by his brothers. His brothers took issue with the fact that God had given Joseph all these dreams about how one day God was going to exalt him. Uh, Moses was persecuted not only by Pharaoh, but also by the very same people that God used uh, to deliver uh, out of slavery uh, in Egypt. So as, uh, as we're about to see in our study in 1 Samuel, uh, David, David was fiercely persecuted by Saul. And the whole thing is completely irrational, as we're going to see. And indeed, all the prophets, yes, even the prophets, they were all persecuted that's why Jesus says here, uh, he refers to the precedent that's been set historically in verse 12. He says, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying that this is going to keep happening. The same stuff that you see throughout the Old Testament, it's going to happen in the age of the church as well. And, and why were these people throughout the Old Testament persecuted? Not because they were confrontational, not because they were foolish or inconsiderate or unwise, not because they were overzealous, no, they were persecuted because they were simply righteous. And we find the same thing as we read the historical narrative uh, of, of the New Testament. Every single one of the apostles 
was put to death, was persecuted unto death. The only exception was the Apostle John, and and he wasn't an exception because his adversaries didn't try. No, church tradition and history tells us that he was actually at one point uh, placed into a vat of boiling oil as a means of martyring him. Uh, But when that didn't even remotely hurt him at all, uh, he was sent to live on the island of Patmos. Paul's writings are filled with uh, periodic descriptions of the type of persecution that he was enduring. In fact, he seemed to have maybe even been uh, murdered and raised back to life at one point. We read this in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. It says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. So the persecution that Paul faced was severe. It's no wonder that he would go on to say in his final letter, which was written to, uh, to Timothy, his, his protege Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now what that doesn't say is that all Christians will be persecuted. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But Paul, when he wrote that, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he was not only speaking with the authority of God who was writing the epistle through him, of course, uh, as God did with every book of Scripture, but Paul was also speaking from his own experience. But of course, the supreme example of this principle that the righteous or persecuted by the unrighteous for the sake of righteousness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He never once sinned. He was wisdom and winsomeness personified, exemplified. And yet the world hated him so much that they chose to free an insurrectionist murderer instead of freeing him right before they put him to death on a cross. Why? Because he was righteous. See, there's this long history also after Jesus in the church, uh, of, uh, in the history of the church of martyrdom. It's what we refer to it as. Uh, when you read the stories of men like John Huss or William Tyndale or John Knox, or if you read about the Covenanters or the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, you see that they all experienced exactly what Jesus said that the church would face. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. He said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And history has proven this to be all too true. So why? Why is this principle true? Why do the unrighteous persecute the righteous? We can immediately recognize that it's completely irrational, that it makes no rational sense. But it isn't a rational hatred that they hate us with. And thus it isn't a rational persecution. Uh, Jesus explained it actually fairly well in John chapter 3 verses 19 to 20 where he said this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light. So why do the unrighteous hate the righteous? Because the righteous represent light and they love the darkness. They love evil. You see, there's something about the very presence of a righteous person that reminds the wicked that they are condemned. We see this very clearly illustrated also in the book of Daniel. Daniel suffered as he did, not because he was just you know, an upstanding guy, not even because he was a guy who had a lot of power, but because he was righteous. And thus his very presence brought a sense of unease to those who were near to him. In uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, we read that then the commissioners and satraps had 
began, begun trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand a guy who wasn't corrupt like they were. That's why they couldn't stand it. It's because he wasn't like them. They couldn't stand Daniel. And so they set him up by finding a way to force King Darius to condemn Daniel for being faithful to God. And he ends up in, of course, you know the story, the lion's den. But this eighth beatitude here, it really has a way of putting our faith to the test, doesn't it? It reminds us that our presence is going to be like a stench. A stench of death to those who are not themselves Christians. And yet we are a sweet aroma of life to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. See, if the presence of Christ is offensive, like a bad stench of death to the unregenerate, the presence of those who are like Christ, who was righteous, will be just as offensive. If you are acting like Christ, you're going to face the same consequences that Christ faced for being righteous. And this is where this beatitude causes us to reflect on ourselves and to ask ourselves, does the world find me irrationally offensive? Or am I, am I being persecuted in, in any way, to any degree, even in the slightest degree? Now, of course, we, we do recognize that there are degrees of persecution. Uh, if you're a Christian in a place like North Korea, you very well could spend the rest of your life in a labor camp if you're not put to death for professing to be a Christian. Uh, it's the same in many places. Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, and any place else that you can find the underground church. Professing Christ in those places will result in heavy, costly persecution. But let me ask you this. Nevertheless, is there anything about you that reveals the righteousness of Christ before unbelieving men and women? Or do you just blend right in with them? Do they detect even a slight hint of the aroma of Christ when you're around, when you're in their presence? And these are serious questions for us to consider. Because while it's true that, okay, in America, our, our country was founded on uh, Christian principles and Christian values have historically been adopted, even by the, the public, the unbelieving public at large, it's also true that many who claim to be Christians practice a type of Christianity that the world doesn't even notice. And there's nothing more tragic than that. Not only do they not even notice that some people are a Christian, but they don't get offended, of course, by it. The fact is that the world can be tolerant of so-called Christians who will just be tolerant of the world, who will blend right in, because the world loves anyone who will join with them, who will stand with them. And so, for that reason, they're okay with Christians who will compromise on anything and everything, which is to say uh, that they are okay with Christians who don't act like Christians. But the person who practices a biblical Christianity, a Christianity that, that allows them to, to or uh, an unbiblical Christianity, excuse me, that allows them to just blend right in with the world, that's not a biblical Christianity. If you're a Christian chameleon and you're doing everything that the world's doing and you're thinking the same way that the world's thinking, 
you, you look, sound, and act exactly like them, that's not biblical Christianity. How can a Christian be uncaring or ambivalently numb about friends, about family members, about co-workers and neighbors who are walking the broad road that leads to their own destruction? How can a true Christian hate the people around him so much that he never bothers to tell them that they are on the road that will eventually lead them to hell? The biblical Christian will be persecuted. In our country, no, it probably won't look like persecution unto death. That's probably not going to be the case, at least not yet. It's more likely to mean that your neighbors will completely avoid you or that you'll be passed up at work for that promotion because you're not willing to mess up the numbers here and there to, to make ends meet. You're not willing to make this compromise or that compromise. Or maybe it looks in our culture like being unfriended on social media. Maybe, maybe your unbelieving siblings will tell you that you're to have no more contact with their children. Whatever the case may be. However, the, the Christian response is not to sulk. And it's not to mourn. And it's not to despair or to let yourself go into a state of, of spiritual depression. No, what does Jesus say that those who are persecuted for His sake, what should they do in response to the fact that they are being persecuted? He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. The hatred of man does not deprive the saint of the love of God. Even revilers contribute to his blessedness. How so? I'd say in at least two ways. First of all, if the world hates you with this irrational persecuting hatred, and if they persecute you when you have caused no offense uh, due to a lack of, of wisdom or, or graciousness, it's evidence that you are reflecting the righteousness of Christ which means that you truly do belong to Christ. And ultimately, there is nothing in all of the world that matters more than that. And so you can rejoice in that. You can rejoice in knowing that because you are in Christ, God has blessed you with every heavenly blessing. But secondly, Christians throughout history have seen persecution for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of, of doing what is right in, and good in God's eyes, uh, as something of a badge of honor. Only Christians who try to live a godly life in Christ Jesus are persecuted. That should describe all Christians, shouldn't it? But the reality is that there are plenty of Christians who aren't persecuted because they are so compromising and they have so thoroughly blended into the world around them. But the reality is that when we're persecuted, it's because we're somehow worthy of joining in the sufferings of Christ, which is what Peter and Paul often refer to in their writings. For example, in Philippians 3.10, Paul says that it's his desire to know him, to know Christ, and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We see this in Acts chapter 5. When the church is just getting started, the Pharisees, they hate that the church is, is growing and, and grow, you know, growing and growing by leaps and bounds. And so they come up with this plan to murder the apostles. Uh, but Gamaliel suggests that they back off and let God deal with them. He says this to them in Acts chapter 5, verses uh, 38 and 39. He says, Stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Very, very wise counsel. And then we read in the verses that follow, verses 40 and 41, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. The question is, are you as willing as they were to, to suffer shame, to suffer persecution for the sake 
of Christ. If you haven't experienced even the remotest degree of persecution, I I urge you to do two things. First, really examine yourself and ask yourself, are, are you really living in a manner that's aimed at pleasing men instead of God? Are you a Christian chameleon in the sense that you're just blending right in with the world around you, the worldly values, the way they speak, the way they think, everything? Perhaps repentance is needed if that's the case. But secondly, I urge you to pray and to ask the Lord that you would grow in Christ's likeness to such a degree and in such a way that the world around you wouldn't be able to help but notice that you are growing in Christ's likeness. And in this way, you will either repel unbelieving people and thereby increase the chances of you being persecuted, or perhaps, if the Lord is willing, the Lord will use you to draw the unbelieving people in your life to Christ. Whichever it may be, remember this. First of all, you are blessed if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. But don't forget that your citizenship is not in this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. This world, this world's not our home. And so we neither seek comfort here, nor do we seek persecution here. Rather, here's the Christian goal. We are to live in such a way that we are striving for faithfulness unto God. And whatever the consequences of that may be, let the chips fall where they may. But our lives have been given to us to glorify God. Sometimes it's costly, but the truth is, it's more costly not to in the end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it rebukes us. Thank You for the way that it sometimes even chastises us. Thank You for the way that it serves as a wake-up call. Um, We thank You for uh, the words that that are spoken that, that teach us the importance of being like Jesus, but not only the importance, but warn us of the consequences. And yet we know that your grace, even in difficult times, whether they be just difficult times in general or times of persecution, uh, your grace is always sufficient in those times. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people that live for the sake of pleasing you, live for the sake of glorifying Christ, And we recognize, O Lord, that that will set us at odds with the world around us. But we pray, Lord, that as the aroma of Christ rests on us, that you would use us to bring many to Christ. And so we pray, Lord, for opportunities to share the gospel. We pray, Lord, for the grace to rejoice in times of persecution. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would be exalted in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.